Oh, my name is Stacy Speedland Gonzalez, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April the 25th of 2003. I'm grateful to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing. And uh, I appreciate the warm invitation. Uh, I go by Stacy Lynn on Facebook simply because I have clients that have been known to stalk me from the criminal justice system. So um, hopefully that's not going to be on the podcast, but hey, oh, well. Um, thank you so much. Uh, my dear friend Pez, I have to, I have to always, always, always thank my friend Pez who has um, invited me to talk here. And, you know, I hope that I remain well-connected and well-respected in Alcoholics Anonymous and still get the privilege of being asked to come and talk in people's meetings. Because when you invite me to speak in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're allowing me to stay sober one more day. So I'm, I'm so honored and privileged to be here. Uh, I am not here for anybody that's in their first 30 days or less. You might notice that there are two speakers here tonight uh, from out of town, and you might think that maybe we're here because we have some kind of insight to share. The truth of the matter is um, I'm not here by any insider intelligence or virtue. I'm really here because uh, if I start saying no to these service commitments, I'm liable to drink again. So you all are keeping me sober today. Uh, and if anything that I have to share is of any use to anyone in this room, we'll have at it. Um, I want to thank uh, Cell for speaking. Cell and I have the privilege of commencing shoulder to shoulder in Alcoholics Anonymous quite a bit here in our local area. So I sponsor Cell sponsor, and I have a sponsor. My sponsor's name is Marty R, and she has a sponsor, Mari G from Toronto, who had a sponsor that recently passed away, and that was Clancy I. And so, you know, we're all we're all connected in different ways in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Pej and I met years ago through a, a mutual friend, Pat O, um, who I knew him and I had the privilege of knowing his mother for years uh, as we would travel to different conventions. And uh, Pej and I are both Persian, so we share that connection. He is my brother from another mother, and uh, it's it's just it's just an honor and a privilege to be here. You know, I've, I've been exhausted all day. I've been exhausted actually for the past two weeks. I don't know what that's about, but I've been taught in AA when I'm exhausted to rely on God's energy rather than my own. And that's precisely what I'm doing tonight. So, wow. I was listening to uh, Cell speak and I was thinking to myself, I wish I had been that, that well behaved when I came to AA. I certainly wasn't. Um, what I will tell you uh, that I've learned over the years of being sober, which is for me a little over 17 years, I don't need alcohol to burn my life to the ground. I'm really good at that all by myself. I'm convinced nowadays more than ever that the insanity returns and then we drink again. It doesn't happen in reverse. You know, long before I ever take a drink, I have this thing called alcoholism. And it, it wasn't until I came to AA that I fully understood what that was. I now know that when I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page six, page 52, it describes me to a T where it talks about someone who has trouble with personal relations, uh, is prey to misery and depression, uh, has a feeling of uselessness, full of self-pity, couldn't seem to be of help to other people, you know, and what that looks like in my life. And that's drunk or sober. I've never been a very nice person. I've always been mean-spirited, selfish, and self-centered, and it's always been all about me. When I was a kid, um, 
one of the things that I used to be very, very jealous about because I'm an adopted child. I, I grew up in a I grew up in a, a home with two parents that adopted me and they adopted my sister and she and I are not biologically related. And my adoptive parents also had a son of their own who was their natural child. And I constantly looked at what they did for the other kids in my house. And I wondered, you know, who got the most? And I always felt like it was never me. So at a very early age, I was comparing what you had to what I had. And I was always convinced that I had gotten the short end of the stick. And that happened long before I took a drink. You know, fast forward, um, I did not I didn't actually take a drink until I was 12 years old. And long before that drink, I was a liar to my friends. I um, used to tell stories because I was convinced that if I fabricated things that it made me more interesting. And so I lied so much, it was darn near a language. And I had friends in school that would find out that I lied and they didn't want to be my friend anymore. And, you know, when you're eight years old and you're running the world, you really do get thirsty. And I certainly did. And I didn't, I didn't get a drink until I was 12 years old. And by the time I got that drink, I really needed that drink. And I love an AA when I hear people tell stories about being at a party and drinking and realizing they were the most beautiful person in the room. My first drink was alone. And that's just, it's, I started drinking alone and my last drinks were alone as well, because that's just the kind of loser I am. And when I started drinking, I actually got into my parents' liquor cabinet and I got a bunch of their booze and, you know, just set out to change the way I felt. I had already been stealing my dad's cigarettes and lying and, you know, just doing the things we do to set up a relationship with alcohol. And when I got enough of that alcohol into my system, I began to experience what it talks about on page 83, where I began to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I did not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I could comprehend the word serenity and I just knew I was hot, you know? And I love alcohol because it is a perception changer and that's all I've ever wanted. You know, when I get enough alcohol into my body, it flips a switch in my head that says, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what's happening. When I drink alcohol, I find that spiritual principle of whatever. And I love that. I love that. I was a real nerdy child. I, I, they, my nickname was Spacey Stacy as a kid. Um, I had another nickname in school. I, they called me Physics because I was a real nerdy kid and used to carry all my books and hug them and wore Busta Brown shoes. I was just real super, super, super nerdy. But, you know, when I drank alcohol, I didn't really care. And I was also very painfully shy. But when I would drink, not only could I talk, I could get in your face. And I loved alcohol for that. I loved what it did for me. And after a while, it stopped doing for, well, it would still do for me, but it would also start to do things to me. And then at some point it stopped doing for me and it only did things to me. And when that started happening, Alcoholics Anonymous looked like a good deal. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 25 years old. Some people think that's young but it was time. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had guilt and shame. I couldn't look you in the face, especially the women. When I came to AA, I had been arrested several times. I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you've been arrested more than three times, all you have to say is several. I've been arrested several times. 
Uh, I've also been institutionalized several times. You know, it's, it's just like that for me. It talks about in our big book that to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I didn't think there was anything all that weird about that. As far as I was concerned, I was just dealt a bad hand in life. The first time they institutionalized me, I was 12. I got out of that institution a month before I turned 14. And that was one in many institutions that I spent time in. And as far as I was concerned, I was just crazy. I knew I was crazy. I had plenty of professionals telling me I was crazy. But when I came to AA, the professionals were telling me that if I had kept drinking, that I'd be dead within a year and I believed them. Prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I had been kicked out of several universities. I had tried to go to college after high school. Now, keep in mind, I did graduate high school, but I have what I now know is the equivalence of a sixth grade education. And that's because I spent all my time in institutions. But when I got out of high school, my parents wanted me to go to college and I got kicked out of college. And at 17 years old, I altered my birth certificate and uh, I altered my ID as well to say that I was older. And I got into the topless bar industry. And I don't say anything negative about that business because I do know there are women in that business that do the right things. I know they go home at night, they feed their children, they, they're decent women. What I'm here to tell you is I'm not that kind of woman. I am a, an alcoholic. I wreck shop. You give me a little bit of money or a little bit of power and I become a tornado roaring through the lives of others. In the big book, in the fourth step, in the third column, we talk about those seven things. Self-esteem, pride, ambitions, personal relations, sex relations. In the beginning, that business catered to all of those things. But towards the end of my drinking, it wasn't the business, but I robbed me of every bit of self-respect and dignity that I had as a woman. Because when alcohol asks for my dignity, I will trade that very quickly. And as time progressed on, what I can tell you is I continued to get arrested and I continued to go to mental institutions and it was all behind alcoholism. Sometimes I was committed to a mental institution because I drank too much, but most of the time it's because I wasn't drinking or I was trying not to drink. And I knew nothing about those hideous four horsemen that would wait for me in the morning when I hadn't had my morning drink. It was that terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. It was just that feeling of impending doom. I used to wake up in the morning and I would shake so badly and I would have memories of what happened the night before and I had to have a drink. I just had to get something in my body that took away all that pain, all that remorse, all that guilt, all that shame. And at 25 years old, in my last year of my drinking, I was restless, irritable, discontent, and drunk. I wasn't getting any relief. I got arrested several times. I actually wrecked, uh, I got into eight car accidents in the last year before I got sober. I also um, got arrested in several times in succession, as one can imagine. Um, it got to a point where I started voluntarily committing myself to mental institutions. I would. I would voluntarily check myself into these places and I would check in my weapon and I would tell them that I was a danger to myself and anyone else who was in the house. They started diagnosing me with everything under the sun. If it's in the DSM, I'm sure I've been diagnosed with it. But they started giving me all these medications and I used to have a pill box the size of my home group's chip box and we got a lot of old timers. I was taking pills four, five, six, seven times a day and life was not getting any better. 
And so I started taking those pills and drinking in my last year of my drinking career. I would take the pills and drink and I would just pass out all the time. I would black out on a regular basis. Um, I stopped showering. I stopped changing my clothes. I started, I, I used to wear this pink jumpsuit. I wore it for like a month and I thought I looked really good. I thought I looked like JLo. I didn't. Uh, I, I, I just became a mess. I gained 65 pounds. I was bloated. I became unemployable for the kind of work I did. And a woman like me, when I get into a place of desperation, I take a hostage. I, I knew this guy. I didn't know what was going on in his poor life that he thought a girl who wore the same pink jumpsuit was a little bit of all right. But I set the deal up. I said, look, you like me. I think I can like you. I'm going to move in with you. You're going to take care of me and I'm going to behave myself. And uh, I did move in with him. He did take care of me and I did not behave. I was emotionally and physically abusive. Um, I cheated on this guy for a lot and took him hostage. And I will tell you that if you're in the rooms and you are new and you wonder how I can talk so openly about this, it is the ninth step. If it wasn't for the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would still regret the past and wish to shut the door on it. But I can tell you any story today because none of them own me anymore. Now, I will tell you that this young man, it took him three and a half years into my sobriety before he would even sit down and listen to my amends because that's the kind of damage I do. That's how I show up. And when it comes to romantic relationships, I am a really um, skilled hostage taker because I believe that hostage taking is an important life skill. And every relationship I got into, I always took hostages. They, I never, once they got with me, I would never let them leave. I would scale the gated community wall and I would come to their job. And so I was terribly abusive to this young man and um, treated him horribly. And while I was living with him, he came home one night and I had taken a bunch of the pills that they had prescribed for me and I had been drinking all day. And he found me and I, I wasn't breathing. And so he had to call EMS. It scared him to death. And the paramedics came and they drove me to the hospital one more time, dead on arrival. I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous because of the consequences of my drinking. It's so important for me to say that consequences mean nothing to a girl like me. It's always scary the first time they put you in a mental institution. It's always easier the second time. It's always frightening the first time they arrest you. But I'll tell you, I've been to jail so many times, I've learned it's not scary to be in jail. And I tell you that because when times get tough in Alcoholics Anonymous, when this road gets a little challenging, I remember what I was doing for money before I came to you. And I know that'll be easier the second time. So for me, it's so important that I stay here with you. Even when things are challenging, even when I'm not always rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence, I stay in Alcoholics Anonymous because I know that that life that I came from is still waiting for me. Now, when I woke up in that hospital, um, there was a lady there who was trying to involuntarily commit me on a suicide attempt. I had not tried to kill myself. I had just drank too much. I had taken a bunch of pills. I was trying to feel better. And my parents were there. And when you talk about humiliation, um, the, the way that I felt that day was completely indescribable. I woke up and my father was standing there 
And I remember him just shaking his head and he just kept looking down at the floor. He could not look at me. Uh, my father was on the, uh, my father was on the board of that hospital. And to this day, I'll never know who called him. I'll never know how he realized that I was in the hospital, but he showed up and they were talking to me. They were asking me questions. They were asking me if I was trying to take my life. They were asking me when was the last time I showered. They were asking me how my organs managed to shut down. And I remember just screaming at them and telling them that I, I just wanted to feel better and couldn't they just leave me alone? And I looked at my father and I remember just saying to him over and over again, how sorry I was, just how sorry I was that I never wanted him to see me like that. And I remember him saying to me, and he couldn't look at me when he said it, he said, Stacy, I'm sorry because I can't help you. He walked out of my hospital room and I would love to tell you that the guilt and the shame and the remorse of that day was so painful that I never drank again. But I will tell you that I, I called that young man and I asked him to bring me booze to the hospital because I can't be present for my experience. That's just too much. It's too painful for me. I'm a product of an intervention, but not like the ones you see on TV. My mother had, uh, had actually gone to Al-Anon. And, you know, whenever I'm asked to speak, it's important for me to say how much I respect and appreciate the program of Al-Anon. Uh, the Al-Anon women saved my mother's life. Now, she never worked a step. She never got a sponsor, but she came into Al-Anon and she heard the message. And the message she heard was that I needed to get sober on my own, that she could not continue to enable me, that there was nothing that she could do, that she didn't cause it. She didn't cure it. She can't cure it, but she could contribute to it. And so she walked into my hospital room and she told me, you get some help or we're prepared to walk away from you. And for the first time in my life, I believed her. On April 25th of 2003, I was driven to a treatment center in the Hill Country. That is my sobriety date. Now the treatment center did their job. They separated me from alcohol for what I hope to be the last time. And if you're anything like me, life does not get better when you stop drinking. There's that kind of weird in-between time where you, you haven't drank in like 30, 60, 90 days, but you haven't had a spiritual awakening either. And you are just crazy as all hell. And that's precisely how I was in the treatment center. There were times where I'd be laughing and having a good time. There'd be other times where I felt like I was going to have a complete nervous breakdown and I couldn't figure out which way was which. But the treatment center did their job. They separated me from alcohol for the last time and they started talking to me about alcoholism. Not the way you talk to me. But the way they talked to me is they opened a door for me. And the door that they opened was a door in my mind that for an alcoholic of my type, the only solution would be Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me when I got out of treatment to go get a home group. Uh, they told me when I got out of treatment that I needed to find a sponsor and I needed to start working the steps because clearly my life depended on it. They also suggested that I go to a halfway house. Now that's not a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, but when you have nowhere to live, that's where you go. I lived in a two-story house with 18 women in two bathrooms. They had a chore list on the wall. I'll never forget that thing. You had a weekly chore list and you had a daily chore list. And I used to complain about that. I used to say, I don't understand why I have to do two chores. Well, when you live alone, you do all the chores. I didn't know that. So uh, they taught me how to do chores. Um, I, I wasn't like a chore doer in my drinking. I don't know about anybody else, but I put on dirty clothes and I would eat out of dirty dishes because I just didn't, I didn't run the dishwasher. Um, so they started teaching me how to, uh, 
how to do chores. I remember they, they taught me how to mop. They put the mop in my hand and they said, you know, move the mop to the left and move it back to the right. I was up there mopping in stiletto heels. I was like, this is crazy, but I know how to mop today. I walked into um, my first home group, which was the world famous 2211 group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Kerrville, Texas, where they just loved me. There was a guy in my home group who was a little famous out in the Houston area. His name was Frank F. He and another member of AA got into a fist fight outside an AA meeting over who had the most serenity, right? And I just loved Frank. I mean, I know sometimes we, we see our members' behavior, we think, oh my God, that's a bad example of Alcoholics Anonymous. I totally understood Frank. I just, I got Frank. Um, and, and, you know, my, my home group was an amazing group of people. They really were. And as Sel was talking, I identified with the fact that I felt completely out of place. I'm a big city girl. I sobered up in a small town of 20,000 people. And there were these old timers there and they just seemed so old. I was 25 years old. I was still trying to be really cool. And I'd get all dressed up for the meeting, get my makeup on and everything. And I'd show up and it'd just be a bunch of 80 year old people sitting around reading the big book and uh, knitting. And I thought, oh God, you know, where, what happened here? Um, but they were so good to me. They were so kind to me. And no matter how badly I behaved, they allowed me to be there. There used to be a sign on the wall in my home group. It said profanity is not a requirement for sobriety. And when I would talk, they would point to the sign. But they never told me not to come back. They never turned around and said, don't come back here. We don't want you here. No matter what I did, they allowed me to come back because they understood the thing that I understand today. And that is, it doesn't really matter how people show up in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you stay with us long enough, the steps will give you principles to live by and you will become a woman of dignity and grace. So they knew that even though I was walking around my home group hustling, still talking to married men, still dressing inappropriately and cursing every other word, they knew that some, at some point an entire psychic change would take place. Or I'd drink again, and then they'd, then they'd be rid of me, I guess. So, you know, my home group just loved me. Uh, the woman who became my idol in sobriety, her name was Gail S. from Kerrville, Texas. She sobered up in the Tyler group of uh, Tyler, Texas. Gail was my idol. She, When she would be in the AA meeting and I would walk in, usually when I would walk into the meeting, I had those worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. I, like my head was so loud, I thought I was going to lose it. And I would walk into the meeting and I would see Gail and she made the world a safer place to be just by being there. I hope where you go to meetings, you have heroes. That's Gail was my hero. She's just the most beautiful woman. And she just glowed God. She had a, God, she had like 40 years of sobriety. And I remember she would just sashay over to me. And in that sweet little voice of hers, she would say, baby, let me tell you something. And I would say, yes, Miss Gail, what is it? And she'd say, for God's sake, honey, get your toes done. And then she'd just walk off. Now I need to let you know something, California. I have my toes done today. And that is a tribute to Gail S. Who back in the day, I used to say, I want what she has. And if you had asked me back then what she had, I'd tell you, I don't know. I know what it is today. Gail is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. 
I always thought that if I cleaned up the outside, somehow the inside would straighten up. But that's not how this program works. It's an inside job. My friend Candace M. from Hollywood says, if you do not go within, you go without in this program. And I almost missed it. But Gail was my idol. And I say that because, you know, since the pandemic hit, Gail has since died. Um, I lost one of my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, when you stay sober long enough, that happens too. You lose these old timers that, that you stand on their shoulders. And I am a product of some stellar, stellar sobriety. I came from a home group that was really active on all three sides of the triangle. And they were grounded in their faith. They used to say things like recapture your dreams. They used to tell me that if I was willing to say yes in Alcoholics Anonymous, that amazing things would happen to me in, in between service commitments. And they showed me by their example that God could do amazing things in and through a drunk like me. I met the woman who was to become my, my sponsor in sobriety. Her name is Annie M. from Kerrville, Texas, who sobered up in the suburban group of Austin, Texas. Every time I talk, I say this, and it is absolutely true. I am a product of some really mean sponsorship. And I don't want to get it twisted. Uh, Nancy B. from Denton, Texas gave me the best definition of a mean sponsor. She said, it's someone who cares more about what you're doing than how you're feeling. That's the kind of sponsorship I come from. But Annie was mean. I have to tell you, she was mean. You know, when I came into this program, and granted, this is a disease of perception. I will see it however I want to see it. Even today, like if I think I need to lose 10 pounds, I'll get on the treadmill for like 30 minutes. I get off, I look in the mirror, I think I've lost 20, right? I'm like, ooh, I look good. I'm going to go eat me a sandwich. You know, like that's just how I am. I see it however I want to see it. And so when I was new, granted, I wasn't showering. I wasn't changing my clothes. I just, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking care of myself and I was neglecting my hygiene. But because this is a disease of perception and I see it however I want, I just knew that I had it going on. And I just knew that every guy that walked into my home group was so sorry that he got married before I came in, you know? So um, Annie would like drop these one-liners and she would just like, she could just puncture my ego like it was nobody's business. One time we were in the aisle, you know, in Walmart, you know, the aisle with the candles with the saints on them. I mean, you know how beautiful they are. Like they've got the light around them and they're holding the heart of Jesus. And I was looking at them and I was like, huh, I would look good on one of those saint candles, right? I mean, I kind of look like the Virgen de Guadalupe a little bit, you know, well, Annie didn't miss a beat. She said, yeah, you can be the same to mental patients and fallen women. And I thought, now, see, that's just rude. That's just rude. I, I'm not going to ever speak to her again, right? Until like the next tragedy. And I was like, Annie, where are you? I didn't know you could fire your sponsor. I didn't. No one ever told me that. So, you know, Annie taught me how to live in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe it's one of the most vital things that we teach people in sponsorship. She taught me how to live in Alcoholics Anonymous. For this kid who never had an honest job, had a sixth grade education, the only real skills I've ever gotten, I've gotten here. And I believe when you can live in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can also survive out there. I was taught to be on time to the meeting. Where I come from, that's 15 minutes early. And I was taught to stay late. 
I was taught to hold a service commitment here. I was taught to dress appropriately and watch my language. Now I have a myriad of cuss words in my vocabulary, but you will not hear a single one of them today. And the reason why that is, is because I was taught that when I, that the in, the outward appearance should match the inward reality. That if I profess to love a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, my actions and my words and my outfit should show it. Doesn't matter how late it is, I'm gonna put the dress on and I'm going to show up on time. And it turns out if you dress appropriately and you show up on time at work, you get to keep your job. It's crazy, crazy. Yeah, so every good idea, every good skill I've ever gotten, I got that from being an Alcoholics Anonymous with you all. And I don't wanna miss the most important part. Annie opened the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and started taking me through that 12 step process. And as that 12 step process started taking place in my life, what happened to me is what it describes in the back of the book, Spiritual Experience, Appendix Two, where it says the personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism occurred. I believe that the woman who walked in here on April 25th of 03 will always drink again. I can't be her. I don't want to be her. But even by myself, I don't know how to make that change take place. I'm the queen of New Year's resolutions. I'm always changing my life. And by two weeks, I'm still back to being me. And I believe in what it says in our big book where it says, unless an entire psychic change has occurred, there is very little hope for their recovery. But the good news is that's exactly what the steps does. The purpose of the steps is to shrink my ego down small enough to experience the spirit or have a spiritual experience, however you want to say it. And yes, I had a problem with the God thing. If you're in here and you're struggling with the God thing, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why we titled that chapter, We Agnostics, not those agnostics. They knew that someone like me was gonna walk into the doors. And yes, I mean, no, I, I didn't, I, it's not like I was an atheist, I wasn't, I wasn't. It just seemed like, I don't know, you know, pole, God, Feels, it kind of feels like a far jump. I don't know. My mom's the one who goes to church. My mom's the one who prays. My mom is just this amazing woman who has all these great spiritual principles. And me, I'm, you know, you already know about me. But you told me on step two that I didn't have to believe in anything. If on step two, I understood that lack of power was my dilemma, that that's all I had to know that I needed to seek a power greater than myself. And you told me that steps three through 12 would help me seek that power greater than me. You told me, don't worry about what you believe. It doesn't matter. If you're willing to just take the spiritual steps, the process will yield the results. And I will tell you, the longer I've been sober, I've come to realize that you can have a very big God and pray very little. Faith without works is dead. It turns out I can believe all kinds of lofty, gorgeous, wonderful things about God. But if I'm not willing to take the actions that it talks about in the big book, I'm not staying here with you. So that being said, I cannot know what I believe. I can have very little belief. In fact, I can believe that this program isn't going to work for me. But if I'm willing to take the steps, the process will yield the results. And as a result of working all 12 steps in my life, what happened to me is I had a spiritual awakening. I became awake 
And for me, the word awake just means to be aware. I became aware of the presence of a loving God that had been in my life the whole time. It was that I was able to see it for the first time. Now, have, been, have I been relieved of selfishness and the burden of self? No. Uh, every day is a day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. Lately, I've been reading page 85 with a lot of people that I sponsor, where it talks about how we have this daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And what I'm about to say is a morbid topic, but you're going to have to follow me all the way through just to get the point. I live in Texas, and Texas is a, de is a death row state. It just is. I don't know if we're supposed to be proud of that or not, but we are. We are a death row state. We are an execution state. And our major prison is, Hunt is in Huntsville, Texas, in Sugarland, where our death row is. And anytime you have a death row state, anytime someone is sentenced to death, those cases are automatically appealed. That's just the nature of the law. So those inmates on death row sit there and they wait for their appeal to come through. And if their appeal comes through, they have a reprieve. They're given a reprieve. And why that's important to me is whenever I read where it says, what we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. I've come to realize that what I have is a daily pardoning from a death sentence. As long as I am willing to do what, it, what you asked me to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Every day I get a pardoning from a death sentence. And tomorrow, hopefully I'll get the same. But I must maintain my spiritual condition. And what that means is it doesn't matter how tired I am. It doesn't matter if the game's on. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. When Alcoholics Anonymous call, calls, I must come. Because you have given me a big life, a life that I can never repay you. And it doesn't matter how long I live. The day that I stop saying yes to Alcoholics Anonymous is the day I, that, that death sentence can be overturned. It is, so, it is so good to have come in here spiritually disfigured and completely destroyed. Like Cell talked about, I was beat up from the feet up. I was just desperate enough that I could hear. And somehow your voices got through all the noise in my head and I was able to listen and take steps that I did not believe in. And the, the privilege that I have is that I have over 17 years of sobriety and I've never left you. Granted, I've come to your home group and I've showed up to group conscience in my pajamas and I've acted the fool. And I think some people would rather I leave, but I never leave. I've always known where I need to be. You're the last house on the block and God willing, I will always stay with you. Now, my sponsor did promise me if I was willing to um, say yes in Alcoholics Anonymous that amazing things would happen to me in between meetings. And I'm here to tell you they have. Remember how I told you that I, I lived in that halfway house? Well, I got to run that halfway house when I was about a year sober. I got to teach girls how to mop. When I was two years sober, I went and worked in the Kerrville State Hospital. When I was three years sober, I went and worked in the Bear County in, uh, gosh, I worked in a treatment center. I've also worked in the Bear County Jail. So technically I've worked everywhere I've lived. The God of my understanding doesn't throw anything away. The other privilege that I get to talk about is, um, oh gosh, this is one of my favorite stories. I'll just tell this story. Um, I decided that I wasn't college material. 
I had evidence. Remember I told you I have the equivalence of a sixth grade education. And uh, I did try to go back to college when I was in my disease and uh, I've been kicked out of several universities. The last one was a junior college. I tried to get a two-year degree and nine years later, I still didn't have it because you know how we are when we're drinking, we never show up to anything. Well, I had a stepfather who retired from the FBI and he had gotten a small pension and he sat me down one day and he said, um, I've been thinking about how I want to invest my money and I've decided I want to invest it in you. And the only reason we could have that conversation is because I had done the ninth step with my parents and I was allowed back home and I was trusted in their house. My stepfather asked me to uh, apply to a college, get as many scholarships as I can and that he would help me with the rest. And I agreed to do that only because I knew that I'd been kicked out of several universities and I was not on the Dean's prospect list. And um, I knew I wasn't going to get any scholarships either. I was quite clear about the score, but I showed up to Shriner University in Kerrville, Texas with some torn jeans on and a t-shirt. And I said, I want to apply for your school. They gave me an application. They said, take it home, type it up, have someone edit it, make it look neat. And I said, that won't be necessary. So I took a pen and I filled out the application and I turned it in. I said, do you need anything else? They said, um, yes, we need transcripts from any colleges you've gone to. I said, um, all of them. They said, yes, all of them. I said, uh, what if I went there for like three years and I didn't get a single credit? They said, yeah, we need all of your transcripts. I was like, oh God. Okay. So I called the schools. I got my transcripts sent and I was working at the state hospital and I got a call from the admissions office. They asked me if I would come down and sign some paperwork. And I said, for what? Because I'm thinking they want me to sign something that I'm not going to sue them or something, some affirmative action BS. I said, what, 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 what do I need to sign? And they said, well, here's the thing. We got your transcripts, all of them. Uh, we've never seen anything like this before. You had 10 A's nine B's, no, 10 A's, two B's, nine D's, 10 F's and 11 W's. Cause that's high roll. They said your D's and your F's and your W's don't transfer. You have a 3.83 GPA and you're eligible for the presidential scholarship. You can't make this up. I said, um, so are you thinking about accepting me to your college? And they said, Yes, we don't give people the presidential scholarship that aren't coming in the fall. And I got so excited, I took the day off, I drove to the admissions office and I couldn't get out of the car. I don't know how to let life be good. I don't know how to accept the abundance that God has for me. And I'll be honest, I'm that girl. If I'm not gonna win, I don't wanna play. And so I'm talking to God in the car and I'm saying, look, I know I'm not supposed to tell you you're wrong, but you are absolutely wrong. I'm the one who has destroyed lives. I'm the one who has done all of these terrible things. It's a wonderful gift, but I don't deserve it. And I can't take it. I'm sorry. And I heard a voice in my head, but it wasn't between my ears. And it said, I am not doing this for you. And I don't know about how the God of your understanding speaks to you, but it can't be about me. It just can't. I, I get uncomfortable. Even to this day, I don't like to show up to my own birthday party. Um, so I walked into the into the admissions office and I signed the paperwork because I somehow I got it in my head that maybe it wasn't about me. Maybe it was about you. That maybe one day I'd be able to stand in front of a group of people and say, if you have an old idea, you might be wrong. 
I walked into that school and I signed the paperwork and, it, and what a journey it was. It turned out as a result of enrolling in the university, um, God showed me gifts I did not know that I had. In 2007, I walked the stage with my bachelor's degree. And in 2010, I walked the stage with my master's. On April the 27th of 2015, two days after I turned 12 years sober, I successfully defended my dissertation and I became Dr. Speedling Gonzalez. Now you can say whatever you want about people's journey in life. I went from the pole to the PhD, y'all. That only happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, if you get nothing else out of this talk, just know this, God does like ugly. <laughs> no, and I, I say that because I'm the most wretched person I know. If you look at my history, I do not deserve the life that I've been given. But Alcoholics Anonymous, what you guys have given me is a life beyond my wildest dreams, beyond my wildest capabilities, and beyond what I deserve. As a result of working all 12 steps in my life, I've been rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. I've been able to do things that I just don't believe I could possibly do if I wasn't a member of AA. If I wasn't an alcoholic, I really wouldn't have amounted to anything, honestly. Um, when, I did, when I did get into that college, I remember um, when, when, I, when I started my PhD, and the way that this works is they get 100 applications, they narrow it down to 20 for the interview, and they only accept eight for the year. I was one of the eight. And I got in, when I started my program, I was there with like some real students. You know what I mean? Like real students, like they had really done college. I'm not, I'm not like that. And they looked at me and they asked me, they said, hi, where did you matriculate from? And I told them, Alcoholics Anonymous. You're the only, <laughs> you're the only school I've ever gone to, really. Everything good I've learned, I've learned here. When I, when I finished that degree, uh, and I graduated, I got a call from the school, the university called me and they asked me if I wanted to uh, teach a class. And I said, well, what class is it? They said, um, crisis. I said, why, yes, I do have experience with that. And I started teaching the crisis class at UTSA. Uh, currently, I'm an assistant professor in practice. They did offer me a full-time position. I, I work with a lot of students. It is an honor and a privilege. I work with a lot of us. And that's the thing I love the most is I get a lot of sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous who have come back to the university because they don't think they're college material. Those are the students I love the most. I mentor a lot of students today. I'm still an active member of AA because that's what I'm privileged enough to be. And it's the most important thing I do. Alcoholics Anonymous is my job. Everything else is just what I do for a living. I think I've well spent my time. I've probably talked more than you asked me to. Uh, but I wanna say this, and that is, if you are new in here, this goes far beyond not drinking one day at a time. That's only the first miracle you can experience. Where I, where I got sober, they used to say, how free do you wanna be? Because you can work the steps just enough to pick up a chip once a year, or you can be rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. You can sit in these Zoom meetings and just kind of zone out and do some shopping or do whatever. Or you can do what the people in here are doing. I'm a whole hog kind of girl. I want everything that this program has to offer. So I'm going to keep coming back. I hope you do too. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you for the privilege of my sobriety. <laughs>